0: Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is your host, Abby Martin. This is the audio of our show. You can watch the episodes on our YouTube channel or at theempirefiles.tv. Another right wing blogger recently promoted an interview that you and I did, um, kind of Marxism 101. And he was shouting out to his audience, saying, Look at this. He said, A Marxist professor unironically praising the Soviet economy. Um, can you believe this? And, you know, I watched the interview again. And isn't it a fact, though, that the Soviet economy, I mean, it had a planned economy. It did have some uh, amazing developments because it was planned. And can't
1: you uncouple that from
0: its political
1: failures? Absolutely. For me, it is the most bizarre kind of willful ignorance uh to make believe that the Soviet Union, for that matter, the People's Republic of China, haven't succeeded at economic growth. You can be critical of all kinds of things about those societies. I am, in many ways, critical of various parts, but that doesn't require making things up. You have to be careful. Economically, the the Soviet Union, Russia, was the poorest part of Europe in 1917, just like China was one of the poorest parts of the world in 1949 when they each had their revolutions. They set themselves a number one priority, to stop being poor and become instead rich, or at least a lot richer than they had been, something which Americans understand as an objective, because a lot of us uh, include that among the things we would like to do. So then, as economists know, You measure how much did their economy grow? You can measure it by the amount of goods and services they were able to produce, you can measure it by the standard of living or the average wages workers got, but whichever way you measure it, the 20th century Soviet Russia was a period of spectacular economic growth. They paid a heavy price, socially, culturally, but they achieved economic growth. So from being the most backward country in Europe in 1917, when their revolution happened, to 1975, when they were a mature economy, they had gone from the poorest part of Europe to the second most important economy after that of the United States. An amazing achievement, considering that there were two world wars in between all of that that they had to overcome. And the same can be said, by the way, for China. Mm -hmm. Over the last 25 years, counting from right now, the Chinese economy went from one of the poorest backward to the second one after the United States, fast catching up, extraordinary. Average annual rate of growth of output in China over the last 25 years, roughly 10%. Average rate of growth over the last 25 years in the United States, 3%. That's not even close. They are catching up because they're doing it faster and better than anyone has done it before. Now, partly they're learning the lessons of countries that went before them, but everybody's trying to do that. China has been number one in world economic growth for the last 20 years, out of all the countries on the planet. I mean, whatever you say about them has to be said, taking into account these realities. Let me be as stark as I can imagine. Over the last 20 years, the average real wage in America, the amount of money you get for a job, uh, connected to the prices you have to pay, so it's a measure of how much you can really afford with your average wage, has been stagnant in the United States. We have about the same real wage now that we did 20 years ago. In China, over the same time, the average real wage has quadrupled. I mean. You can play around it, you can pretend it isn't there, but then you're a little bit like the child who's two years old, scared by a dog, puts their fingers in front of their eyes and imagines the dog goes away until they're a little bit more mature and realize you can do that, but the dog is still there. The experience of Russia and China in economic growth is the textbook example of rapid economic growth.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a lie by omission. Mm. I remember Obama giving some big economic speech kind of praising capitalism and talking about the billions of people that have been lifted out of poverty. Of course, <laughs> if you remove China from that equation, uh, yes, the numbers are quite different, right? That's right. That's
1: right. It, it's really an amazing need to pretend in, in almost the old Cold War sense that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. And that the way you keep reaffirming that is pushing everything that's bad onto their responsibility and everything that's good is ours. It's what we mock in a politician who takes credit for everything that's good and finds someone to blame for everything that's bad. You know, like Mr. Trump. And we make jokes about it, but we ought to be careful lest we fall in to the same habit.
0: You're talking about wages being stagnant, and I want to kind of go on that point for a second, because in the 1970s, of course, automation um, really changed the quality of jobs that American workers had. And then we had the kind of neoliberalism that exported and outsourced a lot of jobs as well. Wages have not gone up. They have been stagnant. Um, Inflation has gone up. Prices have gone up. You have talked about how the credit industry has compensated for that. Elaborate on that and kind of what the consequences have been for the average
1: worker. It's one of the most important phenomena about America's condition today, the question you've just posed. Starting in the 1970s, a century and a half of rising wages, real wages, for Americans stopped. Now, if you have a population that enjoys a rising standard of living for 150 years, and then it stops, it doesn't take an advanced degree in psychology to understand that is going to shake people. Americans had become used to this idea, we live in a charmed place, where every generation lives better than the one before. Our kids will do better than we did. It's kind of built in. If you work hard and you study, you will make it. This is the place that people come to to have that experience. And for 150 years, there was something to it. You could see why it became part of our consciousness as Americans, because we actually enjoyed it. But that means that if it stops which it did in the 1970s and it has never resumed since then you're going to have a serious shock for the population what we did in the united states starting in the 70s when this really happened we've pretended it wasn't happening it's a little bit like our conversation of covering your eyes We didn't deal with it. No leading politician dared to say, well, we've got a new world, my fellow Americans. Your standard of living isn't going anywhere. So we didn't face it as a nation. We didn't discuss it, and we didn't develop any strategy. We let the American people solve the problem by themselves. Well, what did they do? Two things that changed modern life. Number one, if you can't make more wages per hour of labor, because it's not going anywhere, you do more hours. You take a second job, a third job. If you're an older person, you come out of retirement, go back to work. If you're a young person, you save up for college by taking a job on Saturdays or maybe in the summer, etc. We did more work, which did a lot to destroy families because there was no time left. The biggest single thing is we took women, particularly white women, who had been at home and sent them out to work because the family could not get the American dream unless she went out to work. None of this was taken into account. None of this was really understood. And it turned out it wasn't enough in any case. It couldn't solve the problem of a stagnant wage if you wanted to keep up with the American dream. Have a nice house, send your kid to college, enjoy the things that daily advertising was prompting you to enjoy. So what did the American people do? They borrowed. They borrowed in a way no working class in any other country had ever done before. People don't remember, but the 1970s was the time we invented the mass credit card. Before that, a credit card, American Express, was a businessman's uh, technique of keeping records of expenses. Now it was pushed into everybody's wallet, not just one card. Dozens of cards. We redesigned wallets to hold the numerical number of cards. Stores gave us a card, a MasterCard, and all of that. Um, We borrowed. We borrowed for our houses. We borrowed to buy our car. We borrowed with our credit card. And in the last 25 years, we invented a new borrowing, student loan. So now families are besieged by debt. But here's the irony. What kept the American economy going, what kept Alive the American dream, which is no longer affordable, was a binge on debt, the likes of which we had never seen before. 2008, it crashed. Why? Because you can't keep having more and more debts on a stagnant wage foundation. The day will come when you can't service the debt. We call it in economics. You can't cover the interest and pay back your debt and it becomes unsustainable. And we're still in a trapped economy because our people can't earn more and they can't borrow anymore because they've already shown the limits to what debt can be built up by the American people, which is one of the reasons you have the turmoil and the difficulty in our culture that we have now. We can't sell goods because Americans cannot buy them neither with their wages, which aren't enough, nor with their debts, which they can't increase the way they once did. And so we're at a point where there's no other way out, which is a deep cause of both the Trump phenomena and the turmoil in American society as people try to figure out what to do, how to handle it, who's to blame for it. All of these urgent questions come out of this economic history, of the last 40 years
0: no one wants to forgive the debt of no. course no. it's an inevitability that we're gonna have another crash similar to the It sure
1: debt. looks like it and indeed I like to tell people this is not a left-wing economists view I read all the you know the Wall Street Journal and all the financial press most of my colleagues left-wingers right-wingers and those in the center know That capitalism is an inherently unstable system. Wherever it has settled in, it has an economic downturn every four to seven years. We can call it a recession if it's not too serious. We call it a depression if it's really bad. Okay, the last time we turned up was 2009 in the aftermath of the crash of 2008. Okay, if 2009 is when we started doing a little bit better, which is true, Mm -hmm. And we're now nine years later ten years later we're overdue and everybody knows it so the question isn't whether the question is only when and some of us feel that the longer it takes the worse the crash will be and that's my view so I'm very fearful especially in the current political climate what a downturn will do and what political and spiritual, if you like, effect it's going to have on a a population already shaken by the aftermath of the last crash in 2008.
0: Wow, and and we know where the recovery money went. It was just all siphoned by the top 1%. Richard, last time we spoke, you gave our audience kind of a primer on Marxism 101, um, some of the basic concepts. I wanted to go a little bit deeper now and, and explore the concept of the theory of alienation that Marx articulated and how it can be applied in a contemporary society.
1: Yeah, Marx was fascinated by how capitalism not only worked as an economic system, but how it impacted individual people. You know, Marx was an economist but he had studied as a young man philosophy. He was a professor, his first job was as a professor of philosophy. The doctoral dissertation he wrote was on ancient Greek philosophy. He was deeply committed to and interested in how economics shapes our way of thinking, and alienation is about that. His basic idea, it's very early in volume one of Capital where he lays this out, his basic idea is that when a human being, a working class person, goes about living in capitalism, they do two or three things very automatically, routine every day, which if you think about it, have enormous psychological and personal implications. Here's what he means. We go out and we sell ourselves. That is, we try to find an employer. And we try to persuade the employer We have skills that they will find profitable, that we have energy that they can use to make profit. we, We sell ourselves. And for Marx, this is a remarkable thing. Other people never did that, but we do that. We put ourselves aside as human beings and sell our capacity to do something profitable for another. And we sell it for the day or for the week or however long the contract. And Marx said, that, that affects your psychology. Then he took it another step. He said, and while you're working during the day, what are you doing? You're using your brains, your muscles, to perform work activity at the computer or on the assembly line or wherever it might be. And then something happens at the end of the day. You've poured yourself, your brains and muscles, into this work that you've done. But you go home. You must go home, to your own home, and you leave in the hands of somebody else what you have produced. That's part of you. That is part of your creativity, your effort, your genius. And it automatically belongs to somebody else. Marx then says, you are alienated from your own product. And human beings, he said, want to be involved in and engaged with what they produce. Sure. Starting with little children whose first act is to make a picture and show it to mommy and dad. This is my picture. And to have it tacked on the wall of their room as a kind of testimony to their creative. But in capitalism, the worker is shunned at the end of the day, you go home, you have nothing to do, nothing to say about what we do with the fruits of your labor. We may sell it, we may destroy it, it's none of your business. It's another group of people who weren't even involved in the production, who have all the power. Marx says this, his language of the time, you are losing connection with yourself. You are being cut off from your own product, and that takes a toll on you. And Marx argued that workers suffer from this experience, internalize it, feel somehow that maybe they deserved this experience, turn in on themselves, and maybe need, at the end of the day, to go and have a happy hour for a couple hours to get over because they've just been abused, in a way. And the alienation has long-term political effects. If you're denied at the workplace, some say over what the fruits of your labor are, how excited are you going to be to get involved in politics? Mm -hmm. You're actually being trained every day to not be involved in making the big decisions of how you work and what's done with your labor. You're cut off from that. You're diminished as a human being. You're alienated from your capacities as a person to have some say and some control over what happens in your life. And it's very damaging, Marx argues, to people to be stuck in a capitalist system that alienates them from themselves in this way.
0: Right. You talk about the different stages of capitalism. Of course, when Marx was alive, he was experiencing um, an early stage of capitalism, kind of coming off the infancy of feudalism. Um, he never live to see the stage of capitalism that we're in today, which is monopoly capitalism. Talk about what monopoly capitalism is and how it differs from what Marx was living.
1: Marx's time was the early time, if you like, of capitalism. So that you had lots of little employers with a few employees competing with one another in the way you might imagine local storekeepers. What has happened is that the competition of capitalists one with the other is a process in which there are winners and losers. And people who like competition have a little trouble facing that outcome. But the goal of every competing capitalist is to be the one who wins, not the one who loses. That's not only because the winner makes more money, but typically the loser can't compete and goes out of business. And what that means is his factory or his office or his store can't continue. Well what do his workers do will they go work for the one who won who buys the old equipment that the losing capitalist can't keep going the one who won. So, in effect, the winners not only destroy the business of the losers, they eat the losers. They absorb the losers, whereupon the winners get bigger and bigger, until we have, well, let's take an example, the automobile industry. It was once dozens of companies competing to make cars. But now we know a handful of companies dominate. It's monopoly capitalism. Now, in theory, we teach this in economics, there's supposed to be some kind of limit to all of this, but there never has been. So unsuccessful were the efforts of this system to solve this problem that in every society, including our own, we have an antitrust governmental agency whose job it is to watch all of this and intervene to break them up. The way we did for example 20 years ago with AT&T the phone company that used to be the only one was broken up. But what every history of every capitalist country I know of shows is that the efforts of the government come late in the game and after a while the government can't stop it. Why? Because these governments are themselves the creature of the monopolists who <laughs> learned long ago that by contributing nicely to the candidate, donating nicely to the parties, they can keep antitrust quiet. That's why we have very few people making almost everything in this country. Apple, Google, they're, they're monopolists. They, they control huge amounts. They haven't been broken up. Periodically, there's some noise, gee, these companies, because they're monopolies, because they don't have any competition, are jacking up their prices and making wild profits, all of which is true. I mean, six companies dominate the mass media, six big banks dominate banking, I mean, it's everywhere that monopoly has been the product of capitalism, even when the government is called in to limit this, it hasn't in fact worked. So for us, those of us who are economists and watch this, listening on the 4th of July to businessmen and women praising competition is bizarre because you're praising something that isn't there and hasn't been there for a long time, and that the capitalism you love is systematically provoking and rewarding everybody who achieves a monopoly, which is why they all try to do that, because they've figured out that it's good not to listen to the speech, which is a rationalization on the 4th of July, but to live in the real world where monopoly is the norm.
0: And of course, this kind of instates a permanent war <laughs> economy. Um, you know, now we have these imperialist endeavors that are just essentially to protect capital enterprises around the world and expand the capital that's already there. I mean, it's pretty disturbing.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's a historical issue. When, um, when the Great Depression hit this country, 1929, 1941, and everything that the government tried to do, And it did important things. It created social security, it created government jobs, but it was, however valuable, it was never enough. It never really solved the problem. And that became a real serious problem because here's capitalism plunging the economy into a 10-year depression, unable to get out. And what finally put Americans back to work wasn't some government policy, and certainly wasn't anything the capitalist private economy sector did. It was war. World War II. We literally took half the people who were unemployed and put them in uniform. And the other half who were unemployed went to work producing the uniforms and the guns and the ships and everything else. The one way we got full employment was by going to war. The government builds good quality, low cost housing. We're not gonna need the private apartment builders. And they didn't like that ditto we build roads that is a competition there was a question of how that could be done that might not be a competition for private but there's one area where there's no problem the military Mm -hmm. you produce a rocket you shoot it off into space there is nobody losing money by this in fact an enormous array of businesses began to see Payday the government would be the endless buyer as soon as you built one weapon the other side would build one You'd need a new one and so it would never run out There'd never be too many there'd never be a shortage and you could buy the politicians to keep this game going It was so attractive and it was so profitable that very quickly the military and the businesses saw they had a deal made in heaven
0: the last time we spoke, it was kind of a different era. Trump was not president yet. Now uh, the lexicon has changed a little bit. <laughs> Trump is out there uh, warning us about the fears of socialism taking root in this country. I mean, the right wing is absolutely obsessed with not only socialism, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> right. It is unbelievable. I mean, in his State of the Union, he said, America is never going to be a socialist country. He's you know, having his minions out there threatening Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, right. you know, the troika of tyranny. Why are they doing this? Because even Nancy Pelosi said, hey, that's just a few Congress people. They don't represent
1: us. Well, I like to respond to Mr. Trump's uh, State of the Union remark by saying, every leader of every country that went socialist, every leader who was the last one before it went socialist, made exactly the same statement. It will never happen that we we here in Russia will never be socialists, or we here in China will. So Mr. Trump is in in company he should not ever acknowledge because it'll give the lie to what he said. That Mr. Trump says this with confidence is exactly as meaningful as all those other leaders uh, were meaningful when they said it. It's what he wishes, it's what he wants, that's clear. But as a prediction, what is going to make socialism return to the agenda of the American society, which is what it's doing, are the conditions that are shifting. And Mr. Trump has only this much influence over any of those. Uh, He's much more their creature than he is their creator. Maybe a bit of history here will help. A 100 years ago, 1916 to be precise, was the first time that the Socialist Party of America put forward a candidate for president. His name was Alan Benson, was his name. And he ran for president in 1916, 100 years ago, and he got 600,000 votes in the United States. We were a much smaller country then, and that worked out to 3% of the vote. Okay, the Socialist Party thought that was a good beginning, so they ran again four years later in 1920 little less than a hundred years ago. And they had a different candidate, a man named Eugene Victor Debs, uh, head of the Railway Workers Union, very good orator. And he did better. He got 900,000 votes. That's a 50% increase in four years, 4% of the total vote. Four years later, another socialist ran, 1924. Only he changed the name Because by that time, the fear of socialism had led to an enormous effort by the government, most famously the Palmer Raids up in Boston, uh, hounding communists and socialists and arresting them and all of that. And people got a little scared. So what the third effort was, they changed the name. They didn't call it the Socialist Party, they called it the Progressive Party. And they ran uh, a man from Wisconsin named Robert La Follette, famous politician from Wisconsin. He ran for president on the progressive, but he was clearly a socialist like the others. Okay, Um, he got 5 million votes. They went up five times. Wow. It worked out to 17% of the total vote that year for president. And it was a shot across the bow of American business. They began to realize they had a socialist movement in America that was not only big, but growing fast. And down came a repression that we're still living the results of a literally a century of demonizing socialists and demonizing radicals and making them feel or be portrayed as alien to America or as odd or as scary or as bomb-throwing lunatics or however the play was done. And we have to understand that we, the socialists of this area, of this era are coming out of a kind of hibernation imposed on us by a winter of repression that comes out of our success a hundred years ago. That's why I tell the story of that history because it's that's America I'm talking about. That's the United States where the interest in socialism and the support for it has already been proved. We don't need to claim that we do. We're doing it again, only now, under conditions of a capitalism that is not in the ascendance the way it was then. It's a capitalism on the way down. That's why China is so frightening. That's why all of these struggles around the world shake Americans and their confidence that we are not the ascending. The Chinese and the Indians and the Brazilians, they're the ascending uh, economic systems now, and it's a scary time for Americans, but it's also a time when you can question a capitalism that isn't working real well for the majority of people. And when capitalism fails this way, when by comparison, as I did earlier with Russia and China, or by comparison with the 1% over the last 30 years versus everybody else, it's not surprising that people in America are finding their way back to socialism. It's built into our history.
0: Oh. Thank you for listening to our Empire Files podcast. Help keep us independent and ad-free at patreon.com empirefiles. And be sure to catch our newest episodes by subscribing to our YouTube channel.